Lord, we come to you in praise and in worship. We've already noted uh, that really we come to you to bow, and uh, that is what we do just now, Lord God. We bow uh, before the majestic, eternal, triune God, and we praise your name. But at the same time, we come to you um, on the basis of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we appeal to you uh, to shine your face on your people um, at this moment. Uh, Lord God, as we begin uh, a new week and as we begin the Lord's Day again, we are conscious that our great need is to hear the voice of the Almighty God. And so as we come to Scripture and uh, John chapter 19 and the end of this a great, wonderful chapter. We ask, Lord God, that you would speak to your people. We come with all manner of different situations and, and, and needs. And we pray, Lord God, that uh, you would meet us at that point of need. But we pray, Lord, that ultimately that you would, uh, from this, make us all the more ready uh, to worship you, that the focus would not be so much ourselves, but the Lord Jesus Christ and what it is that you've done for us in our great salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name, and for his name's sake, truly. Amen. <clears throat> uh, so in, <clears throat> I had to look it up, but in 1994, a very, very uh, successful film uh, was released in 1994. It was a movie with a memorable name. And so the, the film was called Four Weddings and a funeral, four weddings and a funeral. Maybe some of you remember it. Do you? Maybe some of you have even seen that film. I had a sneaky look at the synopsis just to try and jog my memory to see if I've seen it, and it did not ring a bell, but maybe my wife at some stage has bullied me into, into watching four weddings and a funeral. Thankfully, it has passed out of my mind. That was uh, 1994. Um, but I suppose it's the case that we've had something similar here at St. Peter's uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. This fortnight, it has been not four, but it's been two weddings and a, a funeral. Maybe you see what I mean. If you were here, uh, uh, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before, you recall, actually, hopefully, that we looked at two weddings together. Were you here? Do you remember? We looked at two weddings. The first was that wedding, of course, the first wedding in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And then we considered a second wedding, that wedding, that marriage ceremony that is to come with Christ and the church presented uh, to, her, uh, to her groom. Well, that's two weddings, and maybe you've picked up on it, have you, from the reading that today, this morning, we're going to consider a funeral. We're going to consider actually the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two weddings and then today a funeral. But why? Why would we consider this burial of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because after all, is it not something that is very often bypassed? Isn't it? The, the burial of the Lord, isn't it something that is very often overlooked? Well, I think it's crucial to consider the burial of Jesus, largely because here we will see something of how the cross of Jesus Christ should shape 
our lives. Do you follow? That as this morning we dig into, if you allow that, the burial of Jesus, what will come out of this, I think, are lessons that we see in John's gospel, lessons for you and for me about how we should respond to that sin-bearing death, that atoning death, the Lord Jesus Christ died for you, died for his church there at Golgotha. Lessons about how to respond to the cross. So can I ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles, if you've got a copy of Scripture there, let's, let's have God's Word open in front of us at John 19, and really from verse 38 to 42, that latter section of the chapter. So if you have Scripture open, and we'll, we'll notice first of all here, overt identification with Jesus. I'll say that again. The first thing we need to notice here and zero in on, overt identification with Jesus. Now, we, I think I've said before in, in previous weeks, we've talked about books. And if you like books, we've said before that very often a good book or a good novel will have an arresting, opening sentence. Won't a great novel, some of the great works of literature have that opening phrase that just grab you by the scruff of the neck. Isn't that the case what about our opening phrase? Look at verse 38. Do you see it? Verse 38 simply says, after these things. What things? These things? Does that not immediately for you this morning remove all the distractions in your life? <laughs> and does that phrase not just focus you immediately on the context here, after these things, our Lord has been interrogated. Our Savior, he has been flogged, he has been nailed to a cross, he has been pierced by a Roman spear. And, and in a sense, in John's gospel, where is Jesus at this point in the story? Can, can you picture it? Can, can, you, can, you, can, you, can you see what it is? At this point, our Lord's body hangs lifeless, on the cross, after these things. That's the position we are at right now. There is no rhythmic movement of our Lord's chest. There's, there's no movement at all. Our Lord's head here hangs lifeless in death, having in the previous moments, <laughs> having faced divine punishment for, for your sin and for my sin. Is there not so much contained in that phrase after these things? Don't let's just pass it by. But it is at this moment that you and I are introduced to two different characters right here, right now. Two different characters. So let's take them, shall we, just one at a time. Okay, these two characters. First of all, who do we have? But we have Joseph of Arimathea, don't we? Now, despite the fact that some of the other gospel accounts do furnish us with some details about Joseph of Arimathea. So, so Mark, for example, he tells you what? He tells you that Joseph was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Now, despite that, let's be honest about it, John does not give us a lot of information about Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, maybe you can see 
what John does. John wants us to notice one particular detail about Joseph. So you'll see it there. Do you, in verse 38, what does John focus us on? Read it with me. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. And then what does John say? But secretly? So I think everyone in the room can, can see the idea. So Joseph of Arimathea, yes, he's trusting in, in Jesus. Yes, he's following Jesus. Yes, loves Jesus. But shh. You know the idea here? He, he's keeping that to himself. He's keeping that quiet. He's keeping that under wraps. Who's that? Joseph of Arimathea. But there is a second character here, and I think it's like that moment. You'll know the moment, you, you know, having a cup of coffee after the service in church, and you're deep in conversation with someone, and, and uh, they're having the coffee, and they say, oh, do, do, do you know uh, so-and-so? And the, you know, like, you've been there a million times. And uh, the name that they mention yeah, you are familiar with, you know, the, you, 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 you know this person from, from ages ago. Isn't that a little bit like that here? Because I say to you, Nicodemus, <laughs> and because we've encountered Nicodemus, surely most of us, maybe all of us encountered Nicodemus in the past, haven't we, in Scripture? Isn't it almost, Nicodemus, is it almost like hearing the name of a close friend? Isn't it? But here's the thing, again, what is the detail that John here wants you to notice and remember about Nicodemus. Do you, do you see it there? Look at it. Does, in verse 39, does John say, you know Nicodemus, you know the one who had that conversation about new birth. Does he say that? No. Does he say, Nicodemus, you know the one that, that had this confrontation with the Sanhedrin in chapter 7, does he say that? No. What does he say? Nicodemus, you know the one who came to Jesus when? John saying to us, you remember, you know, the one who came to Jesus under the cover of darkness in a sort of covert way. Friends, do you see it? Do you see what's holding these two men together? What's the common ground here? In both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, you have what? You have secret disciples of Jesus. You have men who have kept their association with Jesus, their identification with Jesus, they've kept it under wraps, and they've kept it hidden. Now, you've heard this portion of Scripture preached, have you? You've definitely read this portion of Scripture, so you know what happens next, do you? What does Joseph do? Joseph, he goes to Pilate, and he asked Pilate for what? For Jesus' body. We, we know that. But would you please consider that in light of what we have just seen? Can you, can you see how amazing it is? He's got a pilot for Jesus' body. Like, do you see how public an act that is? What would he have had to do, Joseph? Like, Joseph would have had to speak to people to try and get Jesus' body. He, he, would have, he would have had to pull some strings as a member of the Sanhedrin to get an audience with Pilate, wouldn't he? He'd had to speak to people. People would have heard. So members of the ruling council would have heard what, what Joseph is up to. And then you think about just the sheer practicalities of this. So either alone or with their servants... Both Joseph and Nicodemus would have had to go where? They both would have had to go to Golgotha. Now think about that for a moment. 
When is it? It's the day of preparation, isn't it? When there's countless people, they're flocking into Jerusalem for the Passover, and they're all walking past Golgotha, the place of the skull, and they're all able to see. All of these people going in, able to see. There's Joseph. What is he doing? There's Nicodemus there at the cross. What are they? Do you see what we have in front of us? We have two formerly secret disciples here making a public stand for Jesus. This is two formerly hidden believers making open identification with the Lord. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It may be long overdue, but this is a double public disclosure of previously hidden faith. Now, this morning, St. Peter's, we, we surely have to wrestle with how we apply this to ourselves. We know we have to apply it, but how? Well, what we could do is linger just now on that really sinful tendency that so many of us in the room have, that sinful tendency to keep our faith hidden in certain areas of our life. Is that the case for some of us? Surely it is. Though the people in the room, they know that we're Christians, right? <laughs> is that it? And though maybe our families know we're believers and don't know there's, yeah, okay, there's some of our friends know that we're Christians. What about for some of us? What about our colleagues at work? I mean, do they know our identity in Christ? What about some of our student friends and our colleagues there? Maybe for, for some of us, what, what, for even our friends, they would be shocked by, by this reality and what we see here, that in light of what Christ has done for us, surely as as a people, we, we should make a stand for Jesus in every single compartment, every single area of our life. We could linger on that, but instead, I, I want actually to deal with what is perhaps even more of a serious situation. So I would ask you, even if you're struggling this morning, to listen and to see if this sounds like you. Friend, are you someone who has yet to profess faith in Jesus Christ, either here in the room or those listening online, yet to profess Jesus? If you someone who's never sort of gone to the elders to make a credible profession of faith, someone who people would be shocked to learn is actually, you know, born again, you know, they wouldn't think of you as a Christian. But this morning, here or online, when push comes to shove, are you actually somebody who is looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you actually, when all is said and done, someone who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then, though, this morning, you might have some sympathy with Joseph of Arimathea. What is it? He's, he's keeping silent out of fear because of society, though you might have some sympathy with him. I need you to hear this, that it is not right. And it's not pleasing in God's sight for you to keep your faith hidden. What is Jesus saying in Matthew 10? You know the words, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before God the Father. But those who deny me before men, Jesus says, I will deny before the Father. 
So here this morning, friend, let me implore you, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, truly trusting in Jesus Christ, then today, let today be the day that you make a stand. Today you follow after Joseph of Arimathea. Take courage in light of what Christ has done. Be bold in light of it. And even after this service, speak to an elder. Even after the service, speak to, to somebody you know here. Even speak to me at the door. But if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and hitherto it's been secret, it's been quiet, today make open identification with the Lord. The one who is, after all, the only friend of sinners. So we see overt identification with Jesus, don't we? A second thing we see here is outrageous devotion uh, to our Lord. Outrageous devotion uh, to Jesus Christ. So if you have been a Christian for a while, any length of time really, you'll know that when we are studying the Bible in church, usually when we're studying the Bible together, having some idea of the context of Scripture really helps us to understand the meaning of a portion of Scripture. We've talked about that before. I think we all know that, don't we? If we have an idea of the traditions, the practices of the time, doesn't it shed light on what is being said by Holy Scripture here? That's true, generally speaking. That's true of the Bible. It's, it's clearly true when you and I are dealing with crucifixion and we're dealing with death. First of all, just take the practice of the Jews. I wonder if you knew this, that the Jews did not allow the bodies of crucified criminals to be buried alongside the members of their families. Did you know that? So if if there was a crucified victim, they weren't allowed to be buried with their families. The idea being, of course, you can see it, that this would defile the bodies of their families, would contaminate them. So what did the Jews do instead? Instead, what the Jews did was earmark an area outside the city, outside of Jerusalem. Listen to the word I'm going to use. It was a ditch. It was a ditch. They earmarked a ditch, a dumping ground, where the bodies of crucified victims would be cast and would be hurled. In a sense, it feels horrible to us, does it? Ditch. Okay. But then consider the practice of the Romans. Because yes, in normal circumstances with the Romans, they would allow a crucified body to be passed to the family members, right? So yet, normally, that's fine, but not in cases of insurrection. So do you see it? If, if a person has been crucified for sedition, do you see? Think about it. If they've been convicted for sedition as our Lord had been, now listen to the Roman practice. If it was for sedition, that person would have been left on the cross for the birds. Isn't that awful and that difficult for us to stomach? They would leave the body on the cross for the vultures to provide maximum, maximum shame for that person. Now, wait a second. That does immediately make Pilate's actions credibly surprising, doesn't it? 
Because what does Pilate do? Pilate does allow Joseph to take possession of Jesus' body. That's remarkable. That's surprising. But actually, it is what happens next that I want you to focus on. So I'm going to ask those on the screen if they would just project verse 39 here. Let's just think about verse 39. So do you see where we are at this point? So Joseph has dealt with the legalities, hasn't he? He's actually gone to Pilate and he's asked, contrary to your tradition, please let us have the corpse. And Pilate has said, surprisingly, he said, yes. So what happens here? Do you notice? So you have got Nicodemus. Now he's coming up to Calvary to join Joseph, it looks like. And and Nicodemus, you can see him, he's carrying with him spices, isn't he, for the burial. And I think it's there. Like I think you and I are just right there at the foot of the cross just now. Right there at Calvary. These two men, right, they begin to tend to the body of our Lord. And what do they do? They wrap Jesus in expensive linen. They ensure these spices are placed inside this linen. And do you know what John wants you to do here? John, the author, he wants you to pay close attention to the amount. Doesn't he? Doesn't he spell it out for you? What is it? 75 pounds worth of spice. That is an unfathomable amount of spice the ancient world. In antiquity, that is the sort of amount that's only used in the burial of kings. Do you see what's going on? Here we have two men responding to Jesus' death. How? By ensuring that they show the Lord as much care as they can, ensuring that they show honor and show devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can take this down. I can pause. And I can simply ask you this morning, are you finding this remote? You and I are looking at what burial practices in the ancient world, are you finding it remote? If you are a professing Christian in this room in danger of finding this remote, I I urge you to see that actually, surely it's the case this morning that God from his word is urging you to follow suit urging you and me to follow after Nicodemus, to follow after Joseph of Arimathea. And in light of what Christ has done at Golgotha for his church, what are we to do? But go and and show devotion, care, honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yes, this morning, I, I mean, in the obvious things, in the spiritual things. You and I look at Golgotha, what should we do this morning? We've read about it here. We should run into this week, eager to bring to Jesus Christ the sweet smell and fragrance of our sincere prayer. The spices, the aroma of our utter devotion to his word. Yes, I mean in the obvious things and the spiritual things, but should there not be also practical expression of our love. If you've had your coffee this morning and a good breakfast, if you're switched on, you'll see that I've missed something. Because I have said that there's something that draws Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea together 
there is common ground. What did I say? That they are, they're both hidden, their association with Jesus, haven't they? That's true, it's fine, it's good. There's something else that holds Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea together. You know what it is. They were both wealthy men, weren't they? These were both rich men. I mean, Nicodemus is able to afford 75 pounds worth of spices. Joseph, Matthew in his gospel, he simply tells you Joseph was a rich man. He was rich. These are wealthy men. And I would ask you, is there not some correlation, correspondence this morning with us? I mean, I think we've talked about it before. But the reality is that we probably don't like to think of ourselves as being wealthy, do we? If we were going around the room and you'd be surveyed, I doubt any of us are really going to say, yes, I'm independently wealthy. I'm, I'm quite well-to-do. I'm quite a rich person. I doubt we'd say it. But are we not? I mean, if you compare yourself to people in certain parts of Africa or the Middle East today, you compare your standard of living to people from a couple of hundred years ago. If you, if, you, if you compare it that sort of scale, are we not wealthy? I mean, how many of us really genuinely are concerned this morning that we might not be able to eat at any point later today? Look at us with multiple pairs of shoes, some of us owning cars, some of us owning our own houses, material things. Are we not wealthy? Like, I, I firmly believe that if you were to gather all the people connected to St. Peter's, not just us in here, but all of the people connected to St. Peter's, gather them all together just now. And if you were just to think about it for a moment and, and consider our situation, I honestly believe that rarely since the very beginning of the Christian church, rarely has God entrusted a group of people with so many resources that could be used for the advance of the gospel and the honor of his name. Rarely would you find a group of people since the, since the beginning of the church. And so don't we come at John 19, look at Nicodemus, look at Joseph of Arimathea, and are we not challenged here? Listen to me. As these men use their wealth to honor Christ's corpse, are we at St. Peter's not challenged to use our resources for the care and the honor of Christ's body, his church, here and throughout the world? You can see it, can you? In light of what Christ Jesus has done for us in bearing in his body on that tree, our sin, should we not respond with practical, joyful, but also sacrificial devotion for the honor of Christ's name? So we see overt identification. We see outrageous devotion to Jesus here. And then the last thing, we see is opening honor for Jesus, opening honor. Now, uh, we have some visitors uh, this morning, so it won't be true uh, for you, but uh, some of you might remember whether you were in church three Sunday mornings ago, if you think back, 
three Sunday mornings ago. If your memory is good, then maybe you'll remember that three Sunday mornings ago, we considered something of the invisible providence, the powerful working behind the scenes of, of our God. Do you remember the sign on the cross? Do you remember, friends? Do you remember the providence of God? Pilate writes a sign, but God has him write more than, than Pilate could understand, more than he could see or know. The working of God, the powerful providence of God. As we close, I want you to see something like that here in this section of scripture. The fact that as Jesus is buried, God the Father is active behind the scenes here, and he's active for one reason. He is active behind the scenes to ensure that as Jesus is buried, that he receives honor and glory even in death, even in the burial. So how do we see that? We've seen it in the spices. Christ is buried as a king with all these spices. How else do we see that? Well, what I want to do as we close is I just want to throw out four areas here really, really briefly. You've stuck with me for the duration of the sermon. As we close, I want you to notice four things, four ways that God is working very briefly. You ready for them? First here, God orchestrates the timing. See, we've established you've read this before. Have you ever really lingered on the fact that the Son of God is buried in a rush? Have you ever lingered on that and thought about it? The Lord of glory, the Son of God, is buried, and he is buried with haste. Now, on one level, I think you and I can see why that is. Can we? What's happening here? This is the day of preparation. You've got to understand, as Nicodemus and Joseph are working, the Sabbath is just there. Like, it's just approaching them. It's in a t- time where they're not allowed to work. Prepare bodies, bury, body, bury bodies. They can't do it with the Sabbath there. So what do they do in verse 42? Since the tomb, the time's running out. Since the tomb was close at hand, time's running out. They lay Jesus' body there. So they put Jesus in a tomb because they've got no options. Time is against them. Do you not see how utterly marvelous that is? You have to understand that to be buried in a tomb in the first century world was something that was only open to the the wealthiest of people. To be buried like this outside Jerusalem in a tomb is only open to the most important and influential people. And what does God do? God orchestrates even the timing of Jesus' death and burial to ensure that his son receives that honor and death. God orchestrates the timing. Two, God orchestrates the details. Because I would just simply ask you, what sort of tomb is it? Do you notice? What sort of tomb is it? It is a new tomb. So it's a tomb that has just been newly hewn out of the rock. In fact, John is emphatic in the Greek here, and he says this, this is a tomb where no one ever, ever has been laid before. It's a new tomb. Do you see what's going on here? See what's happening? God is at work. 
He is ensuring that his son is not defiled by a corpse in death. You see, ensuring that his son in being buried is not contaminated. And ensuring, surely, Psalm 16 is fulfilled here. The Holy One does not see corruption here in death. Three, we're nearly there, aren't we? Three out of four, three. Consider that God orchestrates the personnel. This should be the easiest one for you and me, considering the content of this sermon. But I would simply ask you, Christian friends, who's, in whose heart does God move? Who does God move to become the funeral directors here? We think about that. Is it, is it slaves that are tending to Jesus' body here? Is it servants that are doing that? Is it just the ordinary people that are doing No, don't you see how wonderful it is that God is working in the hearts of two of the most influential men in all of Jerusalem and having these guys, Joseph, Nicodemus, to tend to the body of his, of his son. Don't you see the honor the father is bestowing on his son in this? And you can recognize it immediately. What is God doing but fulfilling Isaiah 53 and ensuring that in his death, what's happening? Christ is with the rich, even here, with the rich in, in death. So God is orchestrating the timing and the details and the personnel, but I've left the last one to hear because it's my favorite, selfishly. <laughs> but God even orchestrates the location of Jesus' burial. Again, I would ask you, consider it. Have you ever really thought about the fact that Jesus Christ is buried in a garden? <laughs> Isn't that lovely? And you've got to understand the word that is used is not of a little patch of grass with a few little olive trees. The word that is used here is of, a, of an orchard, a beautiful plantation, a beautiful, beautiful orchard. Christ buried there. And yes, what does that do? Yeah, that links to Eden where death took its power in a sense, right? And, and yes, it anticipates the resurrection. Mary is about to confuse Jesus for a gardener. But what else happens here? Do you see the honor? The honor the Father is bestowing upon his Son because Jesus Christ is not thrown in a ditch. You see it? He could have been. Could our Lord not have risen from a dump? Could he not have risen to life from a ditch? Do you see what God does? God raises, God ensures that his son is placed in the most beautiful of resting spots. Every detail here screams of the honor the father is bestowing upon his son. And so I end asking, if you're not a Christian in here or at home, do you see why it is? Like, do you see why every detail is screaming of honor to be bestowed upon Jesus Christ? Do you see why it is? It is because of the Father's delight in his son's finished work. That's it, isn't it? 
on the cross, Jesus has done it. It is finished. On the cross, Jesus Christ has soaked up all the wrath of the Father and his people's sins. He satisfied that wrath. And now what? Now that shame, now that our ignominy of the cross, now there is no more need for that. Now the Father can begin to exalt his Son. And yes, he does it in the burial. But you and I know what is about to happen. That the father is going to exalt his son, vindicate him by raising him to life again. That that process of exaltation will only continue. That the son is exalted. He is ascended right now. Christ Jesus knows the honor of reigning. He rules right now. And what is going to happen one day soon? The Lord Jesus Christ shall return. And the Father will ensure that Christ receives all honor from all people, from all ages, as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you are not a Christian, surely now you see what is the most important response to the cross. If you cannot see it, you think about Nicodemus. What must you do? Think back what would have been going around Nicodemus's head from all those chapters ago. What is the most important response to the cross? You must be born again. Friends, if you came in here unbelieving, bow to the Lord Jesus Christ respond to his atoning death and respond in repentance and belief. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we come to you in wonder at the cross of Jesus Christ. We come to you at wonder also at the burial of our Lord. We immediately want to call out to you and ask for your help. We have seen in Joseph a boldness where previously he hid his love of Jesus from the society. The truth is, Lord God, many of us, perhaps all of us at times have done exactly the same thing. Help us in light of the cross to to be overt in our identification with Jesus as a, as a body, as a church, but individually. Then, Lord God, we also want to ask for your help as we seek to use our resources for your honor and the glory of your name, as we see that with Joseph and Nicodemus especially. We ask, Lord God, help us to use what you have entrusted to us, what belongs to you. But, Lord God, we, we do praise you for the way in which you honored your son, even as he was buried. Lord God, we thank you that one day we will be in a garden. One day we will be in that paradise, that paradise with our Lord. We thank you that though Jesus was buried, he was also raised in that garden. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.